if we want to distill the entire law of God down to one or two things, love God above all else and love fellow human beings as yourself. I And I would say that is reasonable to say that that is the core of Jesus's teaching. And if we're not doing that, then are we really following Jesus's message? Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Westchester edition. Today we talk with Dr. Eric Greenberg. Eric is a biblical scholar and a professor at LMU, Loyola Marymount University, which just also happens to be in Westchester. He's a native New Yorker and a dead lifter, so you don't want to mess with him in a dark alley. Eric is also a prolific writer whose students love him. Since a, since a bunch of U.S. politicians are trying to use the Bible as an excuse for stripping the rights from women, and they're also complaining that students have suddenly gotten some of their debt forgiven, we decided to talk to Eric about what the Bible says about forgiveness and money and abortion. We'll also talk about polygamy. Woo! So with no further ado, here's Dr. Eric Greenberg. All right, everybody. We are here in kind of an abandoned LMU, because today is a, a holiday of sorts, uh, with Dr. Eric Greenberg. Hello. And Eric, you spell it A-R-I-K. Yeah, A-R-I-K. Are there a lot of A-R-I-K Eric's out there? I don't think there are too many of them, but of their, of those that there are, I think most of them are either Jewish or Israeli or something like that, because it's actually a nickname for Ariel. Not that it is in my case. It was actually a pseudonym or a pen name I took on when I was about 15 for a variety of reasons. But most of the Arics I've met, they're Israelis. <laughs> okay, which uh, brings brings us to why we're here. Sure. To me, you're a fascinating person on many, many Thank levels. You. Thank you. Um, your mother was Jewish? Is? Was. Was, yeah. Both parents are deceased now. She was the one who was raised a Roman Catholic my father was the one who was Ashkenazi Jewish, uh, hence the Greenberg name. Uh, my mother converted from Catholicism to Judaism. Uh, she started the process when she was in college. She she sort of uh, left the Catholic Church for a variety of reasons and then completed the process when she married my dad, and they were married in the synagogue. So um, technically two Jews. Yeah, technically, yeah. And here you are, a professor of the New Testament. Yeah, my primary training is New Testament, but my current position actually is inter, is in interreligious dialogue. So I've kind of broadened my scope a little bit. But New Testament is definitely the my roots, and it is the the fundamentals through which I approach interreligious dialogue. And um, and and so, if there's any reporters out there, if ever you need <laughs> a, a biblical expert, a biblical scholar, which I don't think I know any others other than you. I know a couple. <laughs> I would hope so. This is a Jesuit school, right? Yeah, technically, yeah. You don't have to be Jesuit, or you don't even have to be Catholic to to attend here or to work here. But it does have a Jesuit origin, a you know, a Jesuit uh, backstory, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so we're in the theological studies studies department, mm -hmm. and you are one of many teachers that teach religion here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, is it required that LMU students take a class or two of religion? Yes, it is a requirement that they take at least two classes in theological studies. It's pretty much a lower division class and an upper division class. Um, I don't remember all the other details as to what do they have to take, but it's a lower and an upper div class. And that's part of the Jesuit mission is that they want to make sure that all students have some background in religion so that they are they have religious literacy um, and they are somewhat conversant with people of various religious traditions. And, and the hope is that they have some background in Christian ideology, even if they themselves are not Christian, that at least from a Catholic perspective, they can be conversant. One thing that, that fast, there's many things that fascinates me about religion, but one of them is it seems like people who are into it, something happened in their life. Mm. Either they read something or they heard something or they saw something and it clicked. Mm. And then they start reading the Bible and it continues to click. Did that happen with you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for me, because I was raised in an interfaith environment, even though my mother was at least nominally Jewish at that point, uh, both my parents uh, decided that they were dissatisfied with organized religion. So by the time I was being raised, it was like, okay, well, we're nominally Jews, 
but really, are we Jews? What kind of Jews are we? Especially if they didn't send me to Hebrew school. I was never technically bar mitzvah. I didn't learn Hebrew until I got to college, and it was more for academic purposes. Our understanding of Judaism really was a much more secular kind of activist understanding of Judaism rather than a, um, a reformed Jewish or, or even an observant Jewish background. So, But the reason that I got involved in religion, I think, was because of the confusion involved in my religious background. I didn't know what we were. You know, we were, we were geographically closer to the Catholic side of the family, so we spent all the Christian holidays with the Catholics. And it was only during pretty much Passover that we'd go down to New Jersey to visit my dad's side of the family and uh, to have Passover with them. And that was my little foray into being more Jewish than, than I was on a daily basis. So really, I, I didn't have as much exposure to my Judaism in a more traditional sense uh, that as I as I did to my Catholic side. So growing up at this interfaith background, and, and and by the way, I spent most of my time hanging around aging hippies at a hippie health food store, and they were exposing me to yoga and kundalini and all sorts of various new age philosophies. And so that really was my religious upbringing, as opposed to more traditional Judaism or traditional Catholicism. So when I went to college, initially I thought I was going to be an archaeology major. I mean, I wanted to you know, be an Egyptologist, but uh, it just didn't work out for me. And, and I think when I finally took archaeology classes, it, they just weren't as interesting to me as I thought they were. Uh, it seemed to be uh, not, you know, maybe just too much digging and not enough finding, really. But um, I, I took a couple of religion classes, and I think by my second one, I was just enthralled and impassioned. And the story is just a, a little anecdote. Um, first semester, sophomore year, um, I had just gotten out of the midterm of my archaeology class, and I was already being disappointed by archaeology. But I had I, this was on the day of the midterm for my Old Testament Hebrew Bible class, and I hadn't gotten a lot of sleep studying for the midterm. I was worried, um, and um, I'm sorry, it was the midterm for 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 the archaeology class. But I, I immediately afterward had the Old Testament Hebrew Bible class, and, and the professor would frequently call on people. And having taken the midterm for archaeology, I wanted to be prepared for our discussion in Old Testament. And I went to the campus center, and I got a can of Jolt Cola. You remember Jolt Cola? Love Jolt Cola. All the sugar and twice the caffeine, I think it was. <laughs> and I'm not a coffee drinker or a cola drinker at all. It's just it's not me, but I thought, I need this today. So I got a can of Jolt Cola. I was about halfway through it and maybe 15, 20 minutes into the class of Old Testament Hebrew Bible. And I'm raising my hand and asking questions, answering questions. And I turned to my friend Ethan, who was a hallmate of mine, and I said, Ethan, he said, what? I said, I think I'm going to be a religion major. And he, he looked at me like, what, what's, what's this all about? Yeah, okay, good, fine. And from that point onward, fall semester of of sophomore year, that was it. I just I had declared my identity as a religion major, and, and it stuck for the next what, 30 years now, and um, and I refrained from having any more Jolt Cola since then for fear that it would reverse the process. I finally did have a can of Jolt Cola when I got my PhD. I thought, well, I'm safe now. If something happens, I've already bought and paid for. So yeah, in 2005, got my PhD, had a can of Jolt Cola. Wasn't that exciting. Nothing really happened. And then that was it. I put it aside. So there's my story of how I became a religion major. Not at all what I was expecting. <laughs> So not to say that, 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 that chemicals were the origin of my declaration of my major. It's just a cutesy little story that it's yeah. a, it was a catalyst moment. But really, I, just, I was so enthralled by studies of religion on a, on a secular level, on a historical critical level, on an interreligious level, not from necessarily a confessional perspective. And if you want, I'll, I'll you know, define that for the readers and the viewers and, and listeners. What, what college was this? This was Wesleyan University, which is in Middletown, Connecticut. It is a, a secular school. It is not a religiously oriented school at this point. It was in its early days in 1831. It was originally a Methodist school, um, hence the name Wesleyan, because John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. But, uh, but they were not in any way religiously affiliated when I got there in 1990. And, and you know, okay, so I was raised Catholic. Mm. I didn't get it until I went to college. And... Did a Bible's literature class too. Mm. Maybe this is the back door mm. that because there's no pressure, mm. you're you're a borderline adult, <laughs> so you're you're responsible for your thoughts now. Mm -hmm. It's not your grandma taking you to the cathedral mm. and making you go. 
you get to go, and instead of in uh, Catholic Mass hearing three lines, and this is the Gospel of the Lord, mm. which, what are you going to learn in three lines, you know? <laughs> but in college, when you actually are reading the entire chapter or the entire book, whole different story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that rung true for me is a lot of these stories that we had heard, I'm finally reading, mm. and I'm like, Wow, that's shorter than I expected. It had a lot less detail than all the other word of mouth versions. And it didn't say some of the bad things that the politicians and priests <laughs> said it did. Did you did you uh did that happen with you too when you were in school? Yeah, I think I I discovered that the passages that we were reading were were somewhat different than how they had been interpreted by politicians and the average person. In some cases, it sort of struck me that they were shorter and less detailed than maybe earlier um, <clears throat> recountings of the versions that we had heard in, you know, maybe in the movies or whatever. Um, yeah, a lot of the stories, in particularly in the New Testament, are they're kind of bare bones in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different kind of writing from today. Which which is actually nice. Mm-hmm. Just get to the point. Mm. You know, the, the 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 birth of Jesus to, you know, in in in, in what is it, Matthew, the first book, mm-hmm. it's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you're done. Mm-hmm. And so in class, you can actually do the assignment and you you know it a little bit. It's different than when you're reading Moby Dick and you're not real sure what it is. Here we, we have a general idea of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about politicians, sure. um, right now there's a, a, a debate about abortion. And in this country, and a lot of the some of the politicians, I should say, are trying to root it in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember abortion ever being any of the many, many stories in the Bible, or the idea of the government telling people what to do, or even the church telling people what to do about their bodies. Mm-hmm. Do you have any takes on abortion in relation to the Bible? I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for your personal sure. opinion, but when when we think about the Bible, is there anything in there that that could help us? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I'll uh, you know I'll preface this by saying that I'm not an expert. Oh, sorry, um, I'm I'm not an expert in this particular topic within biblical studies. There's so many different topics that one could specialize in, but uh, just having refreshed my memory a little bit prior to our our discussion, yeah, the the. The Bible in general is remarkably silent on the issue of abortion itself. There really is no one singular place in the biblical scripture that mentions abortion specifically, explicitly, by name, by word, or even even peripherally. I think the closest you come to it would be statements about thou shalt not kill or thou shalt murder, depending upon how you want to translate it, things like that. Um, so it still throws it back to the individual of how do we define where life begins. So if we are taking the life of a of a of a, a fetus that's in the womb, is it in fact murder or not? So there really is no one single thing in the Bible that that says that. There there are I would say two passages that could be peripherally related. And anybody can probably find these on the internet. They're talked about a lot, but probably the first, the most overt, which is actually, I would say, somewhat in favor of the mother's, not the mother's choice, but rather protecting the life of the mother. And this is in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, uh, verses 22 to 25. Do you want me to read this out? I've got it. Uh, it's quick. No, okay. So um, it just, the, the it's one of the, not commandments, but one of the, the places where God is dictating to the people uh how should you construct the legal system? What kinds of, of laws should there be? You yeah, can go yeah, ahead and read it. Yeah, let I'm me sorry. just read it real quick. So uh, when men strive together, this is from the English Standard Version. I, I have better versions that I use. But when men are fighting together, essentially, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, mm-hmm. but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on, on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is a, a kind of a running theme in the Old Testament where if you do something to somebody, you got to pay them back, uh, whether it's uh, monetarily or physically. We talk about this as restorative justice and even on some level retaliative justice. So there's a certain level of um, uh, the, the um, I'm drawing a blank on the word, but, you know, um, uh, disincentive to engage in these kinds of activities that can potentially harm someone. So the whole eye for an eye thing. So don't pluck somebody's eye out or the government's going to pluck your eye out in return. Or in some cases, if you've taken away somebody's ability to do work, you've got to pay them for the loss uh, of their ability to do work. So in this situation, and this has been um, commented on by a lot of scholars, this is focusing on the, the the life of the woman, the pregnant woman, not the baby. It basically considers the baby in this case sort of a, I don't know if we'd call it a a, a commodity or, or something of monetary value that, okay, if, if we're talking about a miscarriage, if the woman miscarriages, uh, miscarries because she's been harmed in the middle of trying to break up the fight between her, her husband and the other guy, whatever, uh, then, you know, so so they will get some kind of monetary compensation for the loss of the infant because children are, uh, are a source of income for you. In, in, a, in a society that doesn't have Social Security, doesn't have Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, whatever, your family, they're your retirement. Your kids who are going to till the fields after you, they're the ones who are going to take care of you. There are no old age homes where you can put people into. So your children are your, they're your retirement fund. So if a baby does not survive, if the baby is, is killed or is mis- miscarried or something, then all right, then some compensation has to be given. But this passage mainly talks about the woman herself. She's the one of major value here. She's the one where, hey, if you struck her and she dies, you're going to lose your life in return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, I would say, is, is probably the main passage that in any way has any, sheds any light on a biblical understanding of the value of the, the, the baby's life or the, the uh, embryo's life, fetus, whatever we want to call it. Um, it places the importance of the, the mother's life over the, uh, the infant's life. The only other place that I would say that could any, in any way be related to abortion would be the, uh, the commandment about bitter water that we have in the book of Numbers, chapter 5, verses 19 to 31. And it's kind of enigmatic, and it basically says that if a husband and wife are having troubles— and the wife goes away for a while, and she comes back, and she's pregnant, and the husband's not sure, is that my baby from before you left? Or have you been, you know, having engagements and trysts with other men? And we're not sure. I don't know whether I can trust you. Then there's this thing they do where they go to the high priest, and the priest performs, you know, a little ceremony. The, the husband even gives a sacrifice. There's some praying involved, some sacrificing involved. But the priest actually makes up a concoction or an elixir that is called in the text bitter water. And, and there's some, oh, I'm trying to remember exactly because I don't have it in front of me, but there's some dirt from the floor of the temple itself that gets mixed in with the elixir. And he basically makes the, the wife, the woman in question, drink it. And it's sort of an ordeal, much in the same way that we have ordeals in, in medieval times for accused witches. But <clears throat> So she's basically saying, I'm innocent. I haven't had uh, an adulterous affair with another man. It's the husband's baby. <clears throat> so... As part of this ordeal, the priest makes her drink this bitter water. We don't know exactly what's in it. The text doesn't really specify. It just says something about put a little bit of the dirt from the floor of the temple into it also. Mix that in. And if she drinks it and if she is innocent, there will be no harm that comes to her. You know, she will be able to carry the baby to term um, or, or she will have children in the future. Everything's fine. God will allow it to be that way if she's innocent. If she's not innocent and she has had an affair with another man that she's not married to, her belly will swell and she will essentially miscarry. The, the words that they use in the text are somewhat euphemistic. They talk about her thigh, which is probably a euphemism for her lady parts. But the bottom line is she's going to miscarry. And depending upon how we interpret it, she might even die from it. So what is this? Different scholars have different understandings of this. But some scholars, and I think this is possibly a reasonable interpretation of it, is that this so-called bitter water may be some kind of an abortifacient, a, a medical, excuse me, a medicinal 
uh, abortifacient that maybe has some kind of herbs in it or some kind of chemical compound that causes the woman to miscarry under certain circumstances. I don't know how often this was carried out. Some of the rabbis of later time periods have comments on how this actually occurs, but bottom line is that's probably the only place where we have something, anything close to abortion, where the high priest is saying, I'm going to do this ceremony, we're going to prepare this this elixir, this potable that you drink, and the effect will be that you will miscarry if it is not genetically the husband's child. This is so interesting to me. Numbers is Old Testament. Old Testament, yeah. When uh, Joseph and Mary, mm-hmm. uh, when Joseph was, was first notified that his virgin wife mm-hmm. is pregnant, yeah. he did not go to the elixir. At least not according to the biblical story itself. I think some of the later rabbinical stories, if I recall, have what we call a midrash, sort of an expansion or a commentary on that, but not in the, the gospel texts. It does he, not say He it. decided we should just break up. Uh, right? In, in one of the stories, he's considering that, but then he has a dream, yes. and, then, and then the angel comes to him and says, no, 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 she's fine, she's pure and virginal, take her as your wife, and don't worry about it. But yeah. he, knew, he knew he wasn't responsible for the yeah. pregnancy. Yeah. And he so, resolved to divorce her quietly because she seemed like a nice girl. I think right. that was the verbiage. Yeah. 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 And he's a nice guy. Yeah. He says, I don't want to cause her any more trouble. She's already in enough trouble. You know, we nice even, Jewish girl. We, you know? we can't even get a motel. <laughs> I mean, she's been pregnant for nine months. Yeah. You know, yeah. what, what did I do? <laughs> I, 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 my, my, my travel agent has, has wronged me. I think this is fascinating because I don't remember this story at all. Yeah. Which is why it's so great that Mm -hmm. there's people like you. Why, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so all these Christian conservatives who are saying the Bible, whatever, helps their defense of of taking away the rights of this, these women, you're saying, please show me the text, because I don't see it yet. Yeah, please show me the text. And I will, I'll add to that and say a lot of um, rules, laws, positions, platforms that conservative Christians hold and claim are biblically rooted— I think you're going to have to show me the text. There's a lot of these where the Bible, if anything, has the exact opposite opinion. And the one that I love to trot out, and, and I maybe maybe I made this phrase up, I don't know, but when conservative Christians talk about the biblical definition of marriage being between a man and a woman, mm. all right, you find me that passage that says that a that marriage is between a man and a woman because the prevailing underlying definition of marriage in the Old Testament, at least is between a man and one or more women. And I always say it that way to just kind of get a laugh out of people. Like that is the biblical, the Old Testament biblical definition is is between a man and one or more women. You have so many cases in the Old Testament of of the, the ancient patriarchs, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, and so on, that have multiple simultaneous wives. So if we are to take the example of these powerful men, these patriarchs of the Bible, as well what the rest of us should do, then polygamy, and specifically polygyny, is permissible according to biblical sources. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is a good idea and we should all follow this. I'm just saying if you are claiming the Bible tells you this, get your facts straight. <laughs> and, and if you're going to live and die by the Bible, uh-huh. where's your other wives? Uh-huh. I'm so happy we have this discussion. <laughs> Dr. Greenberg. <laughs> King Solomon was supposed to have had a thousand wives, right? Something like that. And, and even if we're not taking that number literally, mm-hmm. it's more than one. Right, it's more than one. And it's probably a lot mm-hmm. because uh, the numbers in the Bible are usually um, symbolic. Some, yeah. And, f- and 40 means a lot. Right. So a thousand... <laughs> means a heck of a lot. Means way too many, probably. <laughs> because he still had the hots for... Uh, what was it, Bathsheba? Oh, that's David. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Who, who did King Solomon? Oh, uh, King Solomon has, well, he may or may not have had some kind of affair with the Queen of Sheba right. who comes to visit him. I mean, some of the non-canonical, non-biblical sources suggest that they had some kind of an affair. Which to me was kind of the lesson, which was we can giggle about having many wives, mm. but it doesn't end the horniness of a lot of dudes. 
Yeah. They're still going to have a, a, a stray eye, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and he probably had the most beautiful harem, probably. you know, of wives. Yeah. Um, and yet this uh, Nubian princess yeah. Yeah. still wowed him and made him cheat on all a thousand wives. <laughs> well, this is fantastic. Um, did I did I uh, pre uh, ask you about the question about forgiving debts? Yes, and I prepared extensively I about that. That Thank is goodness. a that is a big thing of mine. <laughs> okay, so the reason I'm bringing this up is again, there seems to be a, a number of politicians who are upset that President Biden is forgiving um, a whole lot of a whole lot of college debt, and mm-hmm. here we are in a college, mm-hmm. and this ain't no cheap college either. No. Nope. So I bet you there was a lot of LMU, either current students or recently graduated students, who loved the idea that ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars of their their college loans mm-hmm. will be forgiven. And yet these politicians are very upset about mm-hmm. it. Um, it seems to me that forgiveness is kind of the theme of the New Testament, and if not, uh, no judgment. Mm-hmm. So there's there's. Thou shalt not judge. Don't judge unless you're going to get judged. Uh, but also forgiveness is mm-hmm. is kind of the overall theme of Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in um, the Lord's Prayer, we, we're we told to forgive our debtors. Forgive, forgive us our debts forgive as we for debts. The, forgive those who are indebted to us in one version of the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. I think that's that one is in... Luke, because we have it in Matthew and Luke in slightly different versions. One says trespasses, the other says debts. Without opening it up, I'll. I'll I'm, you know, I'm my my church which. switches it. I, I belong yeah. to the Congregational Church in yeah. uh, in Koreatown, oh. and you know, fifty years of of reading it one way, and the Bible says trespasses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet they switch it over to debts. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was your prepared answer, Doctor Greenberg? Oh when yes. I sent you this? Well, so. <laughs> There are, and I, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about yeah, sure. uh, debts as well as interest as an overall concept, because it's it's not only the New Testament that is all focused on forgiveness. I, I think we tend to maybe forget that the Old Testament also is very much focused on um, limiting the ability of the powerful and the wealthy to do harm to the disempowered. A huge amount of the laws in the Old Testament are built around the idea of, <clears throat> of ensuring that the, um, you know, the little guy has some kind of protection. And so on, on number one, we have a number of places in the Old Testament that talk about the idea of sabbatical years and jubilee years. And this is the kind of thing that a lot of modern conservative Christians tend not to talk about because modern conservative Christianity tends to associate itself economically and politically with more very hyper-capitalist um, ways of viewing the world. Now, I am not disparaging capitalism. I'm not saying that I am a communist. I'm just saying we really need to think about what we're claiming here and what we say Christianity is, especially if we're uh, saying that uh, that Christianity is somehow diametrically opposed to communism. There's a lot of socialism in Christianity, and I'll talk about that. But but even in the you know, in, the, in these sections of uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, it talks about uh, not lending money at interest. That if you, and specifically to your quote-unquote your quote unquote brother, your countrymen, fellow Jews, um, and the, um, you know, our whole Western capitalist system is based on the idea of make as much money as, as you can and charge as much interest as you can and so forth. But the, the, the Bible itself has a number of different passages. Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27. Uh, Leviticus 25, 35 to 37. Deuteronomy 23, 19 to 20. All three of these say that you should not charge interest to your countrymen. Now, it's a little bit vague on whether you can charge interest to non-Jews, non-Israelites, and that's maybe probably the source of how uh, Jews during the early Middle Ages living in Christian lands who were oppressed and, and in a lot of ways had no other opportunities for for viable work, if, if there were a lot of anti-Jewish laws passed against them, the one thing that they could allow themselves to do is lend money at interest to Christians and then thereby make a living. So not all Jews, but some Jews. Um, but this also, in these same several passages here, um, there's this idea of sabbatical years and jubilee years, that that the land 
that you own, that you farm, you have to, every seven years, let it lie fallow. Just don't tend to it. Don't, don't reap from it. Just work for six years and then live off everything that you have gleaned for the last six years. And the land will even continue to give you some extra fruits and vegetables and things like that. But in that seventh year, give the land a break. So it's not just you as an individual who take the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week as your day of rest, but also the land has to have some rest. But it's not just every seven years, it's also every 49 slash 50 years. So in the 50th year, you have a jubilee year where not only are debts forgiven, but also people that are enslaved are permitted out of slavery. Um, it talks about this in, um, also in, in, um, in Leviticus. So the idea is that the land must be given a sabbatical year and returned to earlier owners, ultimately in the jubilee years. Um, but also nothing is to be permanently sold or held. It all belongs to God, interestingly. And we see this in, um, yeah, Leviticus 25, 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So that's Leviticus 25, 23 to 25. And, and this kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the ideas about private land ownership that is traditionally, allegedly held by many, if not most, Native American communities as well. We see that in the Bible. So here you got all these conservative Christians saying, no, it's all about profits. It's all about private ownership. It's all about me getting rich. You know, that's what Christianity and Judaism or Judeo-Christianity is all about. It's about getting rich. You know, I have a right to get rich. And yet the text is saying the land belongs to God. And yeah, I want you to be prosperous. I want you to be rich, but not on somebody else's back. And so if you are if you are buying slaves or selling slaves of Israel, and it does talk about this, and this is one of the maybe somewhat unfortunate and, and more nuanced aspects of the Old Testament. Um, so it, basically it's saying that if you, you know, sell your daughter into slavery, you sell yourself into slavery, these, this is really more like an indentured servitude. It's not a permanent thing. Um, there have to be the ability for somebody to then redeem themselves by buying their freedom. This, unfortunately, only applies to other to, to Israelites. It says you are permitted to take permanent slaves from the neighboring peoples, the non-Israelites, the non-Jews. And I think that's something that if we're going to look to the Old Testament as uh, a source of wisdom for us, that we need to go back to the Old Testament and see what it has to say about interest, about indebtedness, forgiveness, abortion, and really see what it says we also need to be prepared for some of the not-so-happy stuff. So there it is. There's the Bible saying, well, Israelites are allowed to take permanent uh, intergenerational slaves, and, and, and this we're talking about chattel slavery, as long as they're non-Jews. That's fine. Treat them well, but, you know, but they still can be yours from generation to generation permanently, but not other Jews. Other Jews, it's an indentured servitude thing. They have to be released after the 49 years and the 50th year, the Jubilee year. They, they need to be free. So bottom line, what am I trying to say is that the, the Old Testament is a lot more fair and egalitarian than perhaps a lot of modern conservative Christians will make it out to be because it doesn't really work for their capitalist system. And so they ignore a lot of that. They ignore the stuff that says take care of the, the widows, the poor, the orphans, uh, the people who are in debt bondage, in debt slavery. Let them free after a while and that the land is not yours forever. The land belongs to God. Um, a lot of that stuff will be very surprising, but also then there's that part about, oh, yeah, it's fine to have slaves as long as they're not Jews. Like, all right, well, what do we do with that? <laughs> oh, man. I, so God, you disappointed me, you know? <laughs> I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> uh, continuing the theme of socialism. Yeah. Jesus was a socialist. Oh, yeah. Like crazy, yes. right? Yes. He shared the, the meals with mm -hmm. everybody. Mm -hmm. He, uh, I think, I think it was Jesus who said, if you've got two cloaks and you see a guy with none, you give one mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, he was um, in favor of open borders, as these politicians <laughs> would say, because he was an immigrant yeah. into Egypt. He had to escape into Egypt. Mm -hmm. And he reminds people about that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so again, okay, now I will ask you personally. Yeah. So when you hear these politicians use the Bible as a hammer mm -hmm. in a way, 
and you know it's not right. Mm-hmm. What what do you think? How do you feel? Or has it happened so often in your life that you just kind of ignore it? Oh, yeah, I can't ignore it. But um, there are a lot of people out there that want to use the Bible for their own purposes, to prove their own uh, viewpoints. As we were saying, you know, the conservative Christians who want marriage to be exclusively uh, a heterosexual affair, between, affair, so to speak, between one man and one woman. You're not going to find that in the Old Testament. You might not even find it in the New Testament either. There is one place that talks about uh, a man and, and one woman, uh, but that probably has more to do with the requirements for becoming a bishop. I don't know if that's necessarily to be, that's that's in some of the letters of Paul later on in the New Testament. But anyway, people love to, to quote the Bible selectively. They cherry pick things that support their viewpoint, their wishes, and it's problematic because you're probably going to find something in the Bible that contradicts that, either in the same text or in another text or in another, even in the New Testament, if you're quoting from the Old Testament, like we were talking about before, where all the laws of kashrut, of keeping kosher, all the food laws are overturned in the book of Acts, where the Peter has this vision of a big blanket coming down from heaven with all sorts of unclean animals crawling on it, and the voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and therefore all foods are declared clean at that point. Mm-hmm. And there are historical and social reasons for the church declaring this, but, you know, this is something that contradicts all of the kosher food laws in the Old Testament. So can you, in fact, be a Christian and still say, we follow all of the laws? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're picking and choosing, you're saying, well, we follow the law that there's no homosexuality. That's a sin. But we're not going to keep kosher either because here it says in the New Testament that uh, we don't have to keep kosher anymore. And we're not going to get circumcised anymore because it says here in the New Testament you don't have to get circumcised. All sorts of things that overturn other laws in the Old Testament, but that one law about homosexuality, we're going to keep to that one. What was the last law that Jesus enacted at the end of his time? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we have four gospel accounts, and they probably all have different sense of the last words that came out of his mouth. It's it's a leading question. Yeah. (laughs) I feel it was, he said, this is my final commandment. Okay. Love each other like I've loved you. Mm, Okay. To me, that's the last law. Okay. Would I get a a B minus on my grade if I turned that into you? No, I think I'd give you an A minus because you're possibly neglecting uh, Matthew chapter 28, which talks about the Great Commission where he says, go out and baptize everybody in the the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so people are looking at Matthew. They would say, well, that's the last thing he said. I think what you had said was, I believe, from John possibly. So without having it in front of me, I don't want to quote it directly. But so it depends on which gospel. But bottom line is, yeah, we could say that that love was what it was all about. We could say that. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, we'll get to love in a second. Yeah. I'm supposed to be baptizing people? <laughs> According to Matthew. <laughs> Have you baptized anybody? No, I haven't. So I've been really, really uh, remiss Is on that. Is this something that we should be working on? Honest to God. I, like, <sighs> I don't know. It depends on... We don't on... really pay attention to that one, You're right. do we? You're right. Well... Now here's where the evangelicals would say we're we're following what the the Bible says we're evangelizing we're spreading the word and we're baptizing in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit and I would say all right well at least you're doing what you say you're doing you're putting your money where your mouth is and I'm not going to disagree with that okay okay let's get back <laughs> to love then because the way that I read that um, in college actually and I and I I'm sticking with it is Jesus took the took the journey of being the baby mm-hmm. and being the man, pretty much a young man when he, when he died. Um, but he saw a lot mm-hmm. and he felt a lot. When he was being crucified, he shouted out, why have thou forsaken me? Yeah. Which tells me he's feeling pain, mm-hmm. like real pain and abandonment and a lot of human feelings. Mm-hmm. So he really did um, walk in the shoes of men. And, um, but before all that happened, he said, you know what, guys? These rules, mm-hmm. you kind of disobey all the rules. We started with the apple. You couldn't get the apple right. Mm-hmm. And then all these other rules that Moses gave you because you asked for more rules. You don't, you, you're bad at the rules. Mm-hmm. So let me make it easy for you. Mm-hmm. Just love each other. Right. You saw how I loved you. Yeah. Just love each other. Mm-hmm. Am I crazy to think that that's... I think you're correct because he does say uh, in a number of places that when, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he says to love God above all other things and to love your neighbor as yourself. And and this is something that is in line with what the rabbis say in later times. It's it's very simple that, you know, this if we want to distill the entire law of God down to one or two things, 
love God above all else and love fellow human beings as yourself. I And I would say that is reasonable to say that that is the core of Jesus's teaching. And if we're not doing that, then are we really following Jesus's message? Beautiful. Okay. Now we go to the next segment. Yeah. Oh, by oh, the way, you got more. You just have, you just more? one thing, because I know you talked about the. I think we talked about the socialism. Eric, in I, Acts. Can, I can talk Bible all day. Okay. With you. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> go ahead. I just want to highlight for people Acts chapter four, and okay. because we were talking about Jesus sharing and a certain level of of kind of communist thought in the in the New Testament. Oh, and oh yeah, it's there. The entire early Christian community was all based on living in a sort of a. a a, a communist utopia, so to speak, where all of the disciples are, they're expecting to go from one place to another and preach, and the people, there are host houses that will just feed you, and they'll give you a place to sleep for the night because they want you to preach as a missionary. Uh, Jesus is talking about just eat what they put before you and just, just let them share with you. But even after this, we've got the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, there's the story of, I'll just read it real quick, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no, no needy persons among them. Uh, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So this is essentially, I would call it Christian socialism. Maybe you can call it communism. So this is the early Christian community right after Jesus' death, uh, and they're following what Jesus has told, has told them to do, and they're living in this kind of Christian communist utopia. Am I saying that we should do this today? I don't know. I don't know if it makes sense, but I am saying that the idea among some of the more conservative Christians that Christianity is the natural enemy of communism or of socialism, that socialism is a dirty, evil word, and that Jesus would want us to make as much money as possible and keep it for ourselves, that is fundamentally wrong and it is fundamentally unchristian. Get your sources straight. That's what I wanted to share. Well, Jesus <laughs> even said about money, about taxes, mm -hmm. who's who's on this coin? Yeah. Caesar... Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give yeah. him back his coins. Yeah. Yours, your treasure is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about this money. Nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. This, is, yeah. this is ridiculous. Right. But he did care about, like you said, taking care of your neighbor, especially mm -hmm. if they were poor, mm -hmm. which, which is, again, so ironic to me that these millionaire politicians, sometimes they wear the crucifix on mm -hmm. themselves, don't want to help the homeless yeah don't want to improve our schools would much rather give money to the police mm -hmm. um, than to education would much rather build a, a jail than a school <laughs> and 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 so it's weird to me that I, I think almost all of Congress claims to be Christians well, I mean, uh, there are a few. There's I mean, a couple uh, of Jews. Yeah, a couple of Jews. Um, there's a, uh, now, now, in, now yeah. there's a few Muslims. Yeah, Rashida Tlaib being one. I'm trying to remember who else off the top but, of my head. Yeah, and yet the Christians give her a hard time. They do they do <laughs> <laughs> for for a, a, a allegedly being religious? Yeah, and I don't think she's spouting any Muslim beliefs. Nah, in, in, not, in not her as far law. as I know. No, right. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just weird, man. Yeah, and it is. and and that's why I'm so glad to talk to you about this. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. There's a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of hypocrisy out there. Which is also in the Bible, too. Yeah. About the political <laughs> leaders there, right? Yeah. Mm Let's go to your origin story. Okay. Happy to talk about it. You were born in a virgin birth. <laughs> there were times I liked to think that. No no child, I think, wants to think about their parents having sexual relations. Yeah. <laughs> you were born in New York? I was born in New York, uh, on Long Island, absolutely. Uh, I come from uh, 
yeah, long line of 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 New Yorkers on both sides. I'm I'm I, I kind of feel a certain amount of pride to say that on my mother's side, both my grandfather and his father, they were uh, construction workers. They were marble polishers initially. They worked on the Empire State Building, the oh. Chrysler Building. Wow. So I, I like to say they built New York. They were part of New York in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, nineteen forties. Were you the first to come to L.A.? I was. Yeah, I was the first to come to L.A. What brought you to L.A.? Grad school. Um, I was, I had finished up at Wesleyan or I was in the process of finishing up. I had applied to Harvard Divinity School and for some reason did not get in. There were, it was, I think it might've just been a tough year for applicants. There were two of my classmates that got in. They didn't go. One went to Yale Div, the other went to Chicago Div, but both got into Harvard and I didn't. So I don't know, maybe it was that whole Jewish quota because I was the, the only one of those three that was Jewish. Maybe they had enough Jews. I don't know. Sorry, Harvard. Um, but anyway, yeah, so so at sort of a last minute, one of my professors who was an advisor, he, he said to me, and this is Ron Cameron, and here's a shout out to Ron Cameron, he's still at Wesleyan. Uh, he said, well, let me, let me talk to my friend Bert over at Claremont. You remember my friend Bert, we had just read the book that had come out by his friend Burton Mack, who was at Claremont. He said, let me talk with him and I'll see what, what, what we can do. By the end of that afternoon, Burton Mack, world-famous scholar of New Testament, had called my answering machine in my little dorm apartment asking, oh, Eric, I hear you're interested in coming to Claremont. Within a day, I was accepted to Claremont, and and that's that's the end. So it was sort of serendipitous that I didn't get into Harvard. So I went out to Claremont a few months later after the uh, uh, after graduation, late August of, of uh 1993, drove cross-country, never been cross-country before, drove in my 77 Cadillac Eldorado that my grandfather left to me yeah. on his deathbed, and uh, drove, what, 50 or 60 hours cross-country, took about five days, and settled in Claremont, California, and, and that was my seminary, my grad school, uh, for the next couple of years. I continued at some of the other colleges in the Claremont Consortium. I got two masters and a PhD wow. in between the couple of schools. Um, and spent 12 years there at the at that campus. Wow. 12 years, yeah. I had a 76 sedan DeVille. Oh, really? Uh, left to me by my grandma. Uh, I think it got four miles to the gallon. That sounds about right. So you cross-country driving, <laughs> that wouldn't happen today. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. I mean, the, just the gas prices today. I remember at the time thinking, okay, so it's about $44 to fill up the tank because it was this 26-gallon tank, and this is in the early 90s into the mid-90s. I actually did this, I think, nine times, back and forth and back and did forth. Did you really? Yeah, every time the semester, the, when the spring semester was over, I'd drive back to New York. I'd spend time with my parents. I'd have a summer job in New York, and then I'd drive back to California again. So I did the, the cross-country trip. Uh, nine times in, you know, each way. I'm counting each way. So, you know, out is one, back is is yeah. two. So, uh, yeah, on what, four and a half times. One time I think I flew. But, um, yeah. Did you, did you ever sleep in that huge back seat? No, I didn't because it was always full of stuff. Oh. I always had, you know, my, my blankets and my books and whatever. So I had to get a hotel room for the night. So I'd stop, um, you know, after 10 or 12 hours of driving. I'd stop for the night one day and then I'd go into the next day. So how long have you been living in Westchester? I moved in there in 2003, July of 2003, <clears throat> excuse me, when I started teaching full-time at LMU. When did you uh, marry your beautiful wife? Um, I married her in um, July of 2005. And so she oh. moved in shortly after our engagement in, in um, uh, 2004. Uh, so so tell, yeah. me, tell me what you guys love about Westchester other than Super close to work. Yeah. Well, that's the main thing. I, I, and I'll be honest with you. There's a lot I don't love about Westchester. I don't like the fact that we are so close to the airport. I feel that some of our health concerns have been have been caused by living in the, the wake of just all this jet fuel being spewed out at us. So I'll say that. I mean, I'm being honest. You're the first person to have said that to me. I'm assuming you're joking or I'm not. I am not joking. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, because... Um, <laughs> I, I don't hear that. Oh, I don't okay. hear that even from people who live in El Segundo. Really? Where where you actually hear these planes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I assume in Westchester you don't really oh, hear, we hear them. them. We oh, hear you them. do? Yeah. The flight path is about one mile south of us. So we can see them. We can hear the going all day long and almost into the night. Mm. Um, and there's always a fine white layer of dust around the house that you don't get elsewhere in L.A. Oh. And I think that's from just the, the jet fumes. Um, yeah, a couple of blocks south from us, uh, maybe what, five or six blocks south of us, 
you do have aircraft going right overhead. So my favorite Home Depot, which is on, what is it, Hindry and something or other, it's like about five blocks south of us and a little bit to the east. Yeah, you're in that parking lot and there's the belly of the aircraft right over you. So we're, you know, we're about a mile north of that and and we, we do see the aircraft, we hear the aircraft mm. and, you know, it is, that's one of the drawbacks of living there for us. There's some great neighborhoods mm-hmm. in Westchester. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Sub neighborhoods mm-hmm. within the neighborhood yeah. of Westchester. Yeah. Beautiful homes. Yeah. Expensive homes. Yes, very expensive. Do you get a uh, LAX sound and air quality discount for living in Westchester? <laughs> well, I think the, the the prices are a little lower there. So we're actually in a rent control department. We're renting. Oh, nice. Yeah, and we're, yeah, we. I don't think we could really afford what we've got. I think it's like one point two or one point three million is the current value of the place that we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the places around there are in the one one point whatever million dollar range. Um, but the places a little north of us, like in the Flight Avenue area or up on 83rd and whatever, that area, yeah, there's a lot of nice places that are 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. And yeah, they they have less of the, um, the, the, the sound of the aircraft going overhead. Right around LMU right here, there's just some beautiful houses up on top of the bluffs that are God knows how many millions those are. And yeah, yeah I don't think you can hear or see the aircraft there. And, and yet you would argue there's an invisible killer of pollution. In my opinion, yeah. And and uh, those who would argue against you would say, well, the ocean breeze will blow it out and mm-hmm. clear it out. And there's, mm-hmm. but today there's kind of this foggy haze mm-hmm. that is preventing anything from yeah. circulating. Mm-hmm. Um, so people should beware before they want to be your neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Because this is serious. I yeah. mean, this is like cancerous kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. There's a downside to it. Yeah. I mean, Melissa and I both have had health concerns, you know, I wouldn't say anything major, but health concerns that that began to show up after we moved into that neighborhood. Mm. So it's not the healthiest of neighborhoods in the world. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of nice things about it. I, I And I, I don't mean to artificially move you to the next topic if you want to hear more about what I dislike about it. But, you know, just to say some good things about it, we're in a little cul-de-sac and there's some good neighbors there, some really good people on that street. Um and because it's a cul-de-sac, I think it's there's an additional level of safety where you don't necessarily have people driving through to get somewhere else. Um, we're on nextdoor.com. I don't know if you, you know nextdoor.com. Sure. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there's a lot, a lot of pearl clutching, a lot of naysaying, and a lot of aggressive, angry people on 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 nextdoor.com. But there's some good folks too. But we, you know, we hear about the kinds of crimes that are going on in other neighborhoods, and I think there's less of that in our neighborhood. Well, that's good. Yeah. Where do you guys like to eat? Uh, I would say some of our favorite places would be Tender Greens. Um, there's one Tender Greens outlet in uh, Marina del Rey on, I think it's 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 like right near the, the Gelson's. So that's on like Fiji or Maxella or one of those yeah. just off of Lincoln. The one that's a little closer, well, maybe it's not closer to us, but we like it a little better is the one in El Segundo, Tender Greens. Tender Greens, um, they have a lot of organic... Um, uh, components and ingredients and stuff, and that's what we like about it. Um, For those of you uh, only listening at home that is not who are not in Eric's office like I am, you're a well-built man. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're a weightlifter, right? Yeah, I'm a powerlifter. Yes, I am. I. Uh, so you care about what goes into your body? I do very deeply because it's a it's a lifelong pursuit for me. It's it's about health and longevity. It's not just about lifting up the heaviest weight possible and proving I'm you know. You know, you know, ego lifting—they call it. That's not what it's about for me. Uh, it's about the lifelong pursuit of of strength and health. So I, I eat as close to organic as possible. Melissa makes most of our our evening meals. I do breakfasts and, and lunches. She does dinners. We eat out maybe once every two weeks. And when we eat out, we really want to make sure that it is uh, organic. I treat myself from time to time. So there is one place I will mention that's not organic, but they are gosh darn delicious. If you want pizza, I think the best pizza in Westchester is LaRocco's Pizza for New York style pizza. And being that I grew up in New York, <laughs> every now and then I want that. So it's not organic, so I don't have it that often. But Where's if it you at? want, it's technically on Sepulveda, Sepulveda and I think Manchester in that area. It's over by the KFC. I guess. I don't eat KFC. But <laughs> Over by the other Gelson's. No, that's Bristol Farms. Bristol Farms. Uh, yeah, well, Bristol Farms is 
closer to here. It's yeah, it's on it's on Sepulveda. Uh-huh. God, what is that cross hey, street? You ever eat at my uh Kanpai uh sushi place? Oh, I'm sorry, Kanpai. Yeah, we love Kanpai. If we have sushi, that's where we eat. Is Good is stuff. the pizza place near there? Yeah, it's right near it, definitely. I saw the ribs place closed down, the Chicago ribs. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Because you eat healthy. Okay. <laughs> Are they organic? But a Chicagoan who's black notices when the Chicago ribs place shuts down. I forgot down. you were from Chicago. Okay. What? I just... I, I wear this every day. Well, because you're Mr. L.A. It's like everything about you is L.A. You, is you've it? Really, you've, you, you've adopted L.A. and L.A. has adopted you, you know. Well, I have adopted it and it's nice to hear yeah. that you think that yeah. it's adopted me too. I'm unworthy. Uh, have you written a book? Yeah, as a matter of fact, well, aside speaking, from my speaking of being published, yeah, <laughs> is this is this a book that that a professor should write, or is this something you've wanted to write? This is what I've wanted to write. I I wrote my first book. It was an adapt an adaptation of my dissertation. I got it published back in two thousand nine. The publisher it was an academic publishing house. They priced it way too high, and it sold very few copies. So if anyone's interested, you can still get that one. Just just Google it. But that's not the one we're talking about. The one we're talking about is a spiritual memoir, and I've been writing it for 13 years, since 2009. It is not something that a professor would need to write or would have to write or maybe even should write. Somebody probably would say, oh, you should spend more time writing academic works, but <clears throat> I already wrote my academic work, and very few people are reading it. I want something that people are going to read, that something people are going to get out of it. So it actually is an exceedingly long work. We're going to have to break it into a trilogy. So essentially, I'm publishing three books this year. Mm. Uh, it, is the, it is called The Exile. And it is a spiritual memoir. It talks about my 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 upbringing, my childhood, um, the the fact that I was a child of a compulsive hoarder. My mother was a compulsive hoarder oh. to the point of being pathological. I mean, she was just such an amazing, loving, compassionate, functional human being outside of the home, but inside the home, she could not manage her own affairs, and mm-hmm. and it it created a uh, an. I would say, to say in the least, an unhealthy environment that just bottom line, it, it kind of shifts into the question of why do bad things happen to, happen to good people? And it becomes sort of a theological conversation between me and God, but it but all that other stuff leads up to it. So it's a multi-leveled book, It's or it's really, it's three books at this point, but mm-hmm. it's called The Exile. 1,200 pages. Yeah. It's going to be three 400-page books. Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Hoo, hoo, hoo. Yeah. Do you even have 400-page books in this in this That's office? That's a of good yours? question. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, well, how much is this? How many pages is this New Testament? Oh, that's the New Testament. Oh. It's only it's only three hundred. Yeah, about three hundred pages. So, you're that's gonna, not too bad. W- would you accept <laughs> a good editor to uh, to parse it down? Uh, I I would accept. <laughs> I would accept their suggestions, but um, really, they'd have to convince me because uh, yeah. I mean, I've already edited it multiple times over have the last. Have you 10 really? Years. Oh yeah, I've gone through it every. No wonder it I, took you thirteen years. Oh, I, I know. Well, the interesting thing is that this is very—it it is largely autobiographical. So as things continued to happen, I—I I thought I was done back in 2011. Yeah. I had the book, and then a tree fell on the house. This is before my parents oh. died. This is part of the story. A tree fell on the house, did a quarter of a million dollar damage, and and you know, in the process, I had to open up the book again and start talking about the repairs and wow. the contractor we met who helped take care of my parents as oh. they were declining. So that's the next chapter of the story. So that was pages, you know, three hundred to five hundred and so forth. So if yeah, if an editor could get it down. Good for them. Good luck. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I really feel like God or the universe kept putting more stories in my path. The book just wasn't done yet in 2011 or 2015 or 2018. Maybe this is a, a Netflix miniseries. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind it. Maybe this yeah. is 10 one-hour uh, segments. Yeah, yeah. I always thought somebody, you know, somebody with darker hair, and I've got a, you know, more of a. I mean, Matt Damon's got kind of a lighter complexion, blondish hair. I was thinking somebody like. Maybe Henry Ian Cusick or Oscar Isaac, somebody like that. Would yeah. Play Every now and then I think about who would play people in this. <laughs> I want Alan Alda to play my uncle because I always thought Alan Alda looks like Uncle Howie. Um, I would have wanted Robin Williams to play my dad because, oh, I'm sorry. When Robin Williams was getting older and he had the beard, he kind of looked like my dad. Yeah. You know, we, we've lost a lot with, with Robin Williams yeah. passing on, but also now we don't have him being able to play my dad in the movie. But uh. Let's wrap up with this. Yeah. Mr. Biblical Scholar. Yeah. 
Incredible writer, prolific writer. Jesus, <laughs> 1,300 pages. If somebody is curious about the Bible mm-hmm. and wants to take it in their own hands for once, mm-hmm. what book of the Bible do you think that they should start with? That's a very good question. I think I think like Genesis is a pretty good place. Like start with Adam and Eve. Like mm-hmm. uh, what is that? Chapter four or five? Uh, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I think I thought it starts I also, earlier. I also feel like it's it's easier to read than mm-hmm. some of the others. Am I wrong? Do you it think depends on, good, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis is a good place to start? It's a reasonable place to start. See, it depends on what you're going to get out of it, because millions of people have read the Bible over the last couple of hundred years that that we've had universal literacy. Mm-hmm. Do people actually get anything out of it? Do people actually become nicer people? The conservatives we were talking about, they read the Bible, but they're reading it. Do they? Uh, they do. But they're not reading it with critical eyes. They're cherry-picking it. Yeah. They're, and so what I would suggest is, yeah, go ahead and read the Bible, Read Genesis if you want. Maybe start with the New Testament. Maybe start with the Gospel of of Matthew, possibly. But I would say get yourself access to a good textbook about the Bible. And I strongly recommend Bart Ehrman's uh, introduction to the New Testament or whatever it's called. He's he's like the his his textbook is the standard. It's like historical introduction to the New Testament. Yeah, Um, it's a great book, and it will help guide you uh, in in critical reading of the New Testament instead of just picking and choosing what you want. I also recommend the, the book that you have on your table here, the New Revised Standard, oh, yeah. as mm-hmm. opposed to the King James. Yes. Because the these and thous, I think, st- stop people. Yeah, they do. It's On it's, page one. Yeah, it's sort of putting, as they say, putting a hill in front of the poorhouse. Here you are, a person trying to trying to get to God, and then somebody's putting an obstacle right in front of you. The these and thous and those, they, yeah, they, they stop you because yeah. it's language that's 400 years old. And it, even though it's beautiful... I would say exercise caution before you choose the King James Version as your Bible mm-hmm. to really understand the Bible. So yeah, New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV is a perfectly good one. New International Version, the NIV is another good one. Mm-hmm. For Catholics, the New American Bible is the standard Catholic Bible for English speakers. Mm-hmm. Any of these are, are good Bibles. And, and these translations, just again, for people who, who aren't familiar, it's not that they're changing a lot. Mm-hmm. They're just polishing the edges a little bit so that it's it's easier, it's more conversational to read. He he doesn't right. say, kill people, I don't give a crap. <laughs> They're ugly anyways. Yeah. No, it's still the same theme. It's still the same story. In fact, what I like to do, especially when I read a passage in the New Revised Standard, I then go to BibleGateway.com mm, yeah. mm-hmm. and see what the King James sounded like. And sometimes, to your point... It's more beautiful with King James, but I at least know what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that a good technique? I would agree, yeah. Take a modern language version so you know what it's saying, um, and then maybe find a copy of the King James Version, BibleGateway.com, BibleHub.com, or two good online sources, and you can see multiple versions of the Bible, including the KJV, the King James Version, and you can see what it says in comparison to your NRSV or your NIV yeah. Uh, I, I, again, I'm sorry, I recommended sure. a, an Old Testament. I'm, I'm sitting here with a New Testament expert. <laughs> Why Matthew over the other four? Well, just because it's a good place to start. I mean, each, and this is why I recommend read it with a critical eye, read about the differences between them, get a course, uh, a textbook like uh, like Bart Ehrman's textbook, see some of his online courses. I also have a little online course about the New Testament for free on my YouTube channel. It's just a way to get my work out there. You know, it's just, uh, what, a 23-hour course. It's, it's like like 11 parts, 11 parts, 23 hours for free about the New Testament. So... What's your URL? Oh, uh, well, it's, what is it? Uh, I think my channel is just... Dr. Eric or Dr. Eric Greenberg on 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 YouTube. Okay. I'll give it to you, and you can put it in your. I'll, I'll put it on the, on the page. Yeah. Uh, but those of you who are just listening, mm-hmm. Dr. A R I K Greenberg, and the doctor is just D R, so it's D R A R I K Greenberg with a B E R G. But yeah, Matthew is it's the first book in the New Testament, so there's start somewhere. Um, but you know, you could start with Mark if you want. You could start with John. I don't, I don't really care, but it's just a good place to start. Yeah. Um, but read it with a critical eye. Read about the differences between them because there are a lot of divergences between the Gospels. You know, I like I like reading Matthew around Christmas time mm-hmm. because it, it is that story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's always interesting to me to read it once mm-hmm. a year because I'm like, oh yeah, 
What were those those uh, farmers thinking <laughs> when they saw the star? What were the wise men thinking when they saw that? And there's not a lot of answers. No. You know, and so you can use your imagination a little bit. Mm-hmm. I try not to go too crazy. Um, but I think Christmas time is a great time to start reading the New Testament. And yeah. it's, it's short. Yeah. It's very short. It's the shortest uh, section of the Bible. <laughs> so if you want to, if you want to, just a quick read, yeah, read. Go to the back part. Go read the New Testament before the before the Old Testament. <laughs> Doctor Greenberg, thank you. Thank you. Thank God you, bless Tony. you. Great to see you. Great to speak with you. Thank Great you for this. You. Yeah. We'll see you at Tender Greens. At Tender Greens, <laughs> and don't forget to buy the Exile. <laughs> How great was Eric? You know who we'd go to Tender Greens with? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, thank you for letting us hear from a biblical scholar for an hour. Other podcasts about L.A. neighborhoods don't do that. So shout out to our Patreons. Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Granke, Ben Welsh, Jen Adams, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, and Adam Shorn. Want to support this fine podcast that features beautiful souls like Eric? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal is 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website or Medium blog forever. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com, and uh, you'll feel better about yourself. Want to support us, but you're not tenured and you barely are hanging in there? (laughs) Trust me, we get it. You can still help. Post this episode on your Facebook. It'll cause a little commotion. And if you want to go crazy, post two episodes. Tweet something nice about this. In fact, anytime you see me or the Here in LA uh, Twitter account uh, tweet something, just retweet it. It's a click. Here, click. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell your friends how Here in LA is spelled, and it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify and Amazon and all of them. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who memorized most of the Torah, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and the President of the United States, who not only stoked all those students, but also helped LA City Council rid themselves of a leader who needed to go. I'm with the Blacks!